Easter. Like we're celebrating, just to be clear, we're celebrating a dude rising from the dead. We all clear on that? Yeah. Some people cheer and they're like, wait, that's weird. Can we all acknowledge that as an oddity? Yeah, a bit strange. I would just like to humbly remind every one of us, including all all of us here who are part of this community, that there has been a church, a community of people for thousands of years who insist that Jesus changed everything, that there's a tomb that is empty and that when you trust this story, something in your heart is unleashed, something in your heart is unlocked, and something begins to change inside your life. There's something that happens when you begin to trust this story. So my question today is what happens if you actually live like the resurrection is true? I'm gonna use this term practicing resurrection. What if we were to trust to whatever degree, even those of you who are like, yeah, 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 okay, I trust that a guy raised from the dead, I've been going to church forever, Easter, Jesus, I got baptized, I'm a part of this community. Like don't, don't, don't tap out. Because I think for every one of us, whether we are so far from even believing or, or trusting that that could have been true, or we like to spiritualize it, or we're someone who's heard that for years and years and years and years, it's still the same, same spectrum of living in light of that being real. And all of the ramifications that come from trusting, not only that a dude rose from the dead, but everything that the scriptures say are the implications of that. So what does it mean for us to practice? What happens if you just live like resurrection is true? That new life, both here and now, and in eternity, is real. That beauty, resurrection is saying beauty can come from loss. S.D. Gordon, the writer, says Easter spells out beauty. Easter spells out the beauty of new life. And these are the stories that our folklore are filled with. I think it's because the human heart desperately, desperately, desperately wants to believe that it's true. That death doesn't have the last word. We fight death around every corner. If we have the resources, we fight death with medical procedures and surgeries. We fight thinking about death. There's a syndrome I talked about, I think, last Easter, generative death anxiety. It's what psychologists believe that is basically what everyone struggles with, but they just can't acknowledge it. That we are all some base level that we can't even will ourselves to think about, you're going to (laughs) die. Really exciting, right? Welcome to Easter Sunday you're going to die. But this is undergirding everything. And so for us to want to trust that death isn't the last word, that there's some sort of freedom and release. Uh, There's this great story of a a few rabbis, uh, and they're talking about life and death, and the question came up, hey, when you're in your casket, what do you want people to say? So the first guy goes, "I I want people to look down at my casket and just say, man, he was such a good father. What an ethical, ethical man. He was just, he he cared so much about others. 
And then the other rabbi's like, oh, I like that, I like that. He's like, I want people to look in and go, this was, he was such a spiritual leader and he did so much to care for the poor and, and his legacy, and, and just they're, they're thinking, man, his legacy is gonna live on in me. And the third, the third rabbi goes, well, if people are looking over my casket, I want them to say, look, he's moving. Woody Allen says, I don't want to achieve immorality through my work. I want to achieve immorality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. It sounds like Captain Obvious to say like we don't want to die. But to believe that in some way death has been defeated and there are ramifications for me that death and loss and whatever I'm going through does not have the last word like we opened the service with Derek proclaiming as people were standing up. That eating disorder doesn't have the last word. This family brokenness does not have the word. The loss of a father at age one does not have the last word. As you saw people just stand up. There's something about Easter that then ends with, actually, this is even bigger than all of that, that death itself is not the end. So what happens if we live like this is true? Like resurrection is actually true. Have you ever been invited to experience something? To live like something is true when you weren't sure if it was real? Have you ever been invited to do that? I was talking really briefly uh, to, my, to my wife this morning. Because I had a story, and, and hers is kind of better. Um, mine just involved the boogeyman. I, 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 I saw a Ghostbusters, animated Ghostbusters series. Anybody 80s kids out there? Yeah, and the boogeyman, for some reason, he like got in my head. I can still see the image. And the boogeyman would come out in my dream, and he would grab my family with these like massive hands, and then suck them down into what was like a, a whirlpool, you know, like the spinning circles, and then he would fade into the middle. My whole family would go, Andrew, Andrew. And I was sitting there like, no. And I would wake up. This, this happened like, some kid's laughing at me. Three-year-old's like, you still believe in the boogeyman? I, I, uh, I was like haunted by this dream. And I think it would come up like a couple times a year. And I had to start to like, and this was <laughs> older than I would like to admit. I was struggling with this dream. And my, my parents were like, you need to actually practice acknowledging, right? This is really simple that like the boogeyman is actually not real, but the boogeyman was very real to me. So my, my wife's story this morning, she was telling me about riding a bike. Uh, her dad uh, would come to her and say, look, you're gonna love riding a bike. Who doesn't love riding a bike? And she, uh, and if you know Corey, my wife, she, she is a very, sen- or used to be, very sensitive soul. And so she would cry, like freak out cry every time her dad would want to teach her how to ride a bike. It was like the most horrific thing. No, trust me. Trust me, this is going to be awesome. And every Sunday, apparently, after church, they would go, and she would just, it was like pulling teeth. Now, you need to trust me to begin to practice like this is actually great, even though you're scared out of your mind. Have you ever tried to practice something? Have you ever tried to live like something was true, even if you weren't sure that it was? What happens if you actually live like the resurrection is true? 
that God is making everything new. In Ecclesiastes, it says, uh, he has made everything beautiful in its time. At the end of the scripture, that's in the beginning of the scriptures, before we even get to the story of Easter. At the end of the scriptures, we get a picture of what Jesus, in some mysterious way, even now through us, Jesus is making all things new. In fact, that's like tied into our vision statement, right? joining God in the renewal of everything. That God is bringing about beauty from brokenness. He has made everything and will make everything beautiful in his time. So I, I want to talk a little bit before we get to the story of Easter. What, what does this God like? If we're going to trust that this thing happened, we need to understand a bit of the character of this God and what it means to take maybe ownership over what it would look like, maybe ownership's the wrong word, have some clear ideas. If we were gonna practice this, wherever you're at, whether, again, you've been walking with Jesus forever or you are, again, far from, far from even believing in any of this, somebody dragged you here this morning, what would it look like to, to live as if this were true? So, so we need some pictures of what this God is like and what he is doing when it says God is making everything beautiful and new and how Easter ties into that at all. If you want to turn with me uh, to Psalm 29, if you have your Bibles. I apologize, I don't have them on the screen, so you can just keep looking at our, the Superman building. And we can pray for the Superman building, right? Do we have a tenant for that yet? Nope. All right, great. Psalm 29. The psalmist is writing about his understanding of God. He says, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Splendor here simply is referring to beauty. This writer, like so many who have come before him and after him, looked at the divine and said, I've never seen anything more beautiful. And what I've experienced and what I've seen and what I understand of transcendence, of what I understand of things beyond myself, of, of seeing this, this God and all the stories that God has, all the places that God had revealed himself to David. He goes, I've never seen anything. I want to ascribe to the Lord, to put on God, like his glory and strength, to give glory to his name. Glory means like weight, significance, heaviness. Like there's an authority, a weightiness to who this God is and then worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Psalm 96, a few pages over. Splendor, here's the word again, beauty and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor, the beauty of his holiness. David saying, how beautiful is this God? Nothing compares. I tremble before David is having this unbelievable experience. It's why arguably some of the most beautiful and compelling and rich art throughout the centuries have come from those who, who have claimed to see and know and trust the risen Jesus. The source of everything good and true and beautiful, this writer is just overwhelmed. Last Psalm here, Psalm 27, four. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple, to gaze on the beauty 
of the Lord. My heart says of you, he says later on in verse eight, seek his face. And he says, your face, Lord, I will seek. The writer is beside himself. He is blown away by the beauty and glory and transcendence of who God is. What are the most beautiful moments you've ever had? What are the moments where you felt like you engaged like ultimate beauty? It stopped you in your tracks. You like felt compelled to tell other people like gaze upon the beauty of this because everybody speaks like that nowadays. Hey dude, gaze upon the beauty of this. That sounded wrong. <laughs> uh, for, for me, and this is typical of a lot of parents, but it was a moment, one moment I was thinking of recently was when um, my daughter Harper was born. Um, and we had in our, in our uh, we were taking this, it's called the Bradley Method. It was like husband coached child, um, child birth class thing. I don't know. All I know is I was going to be like an extra special helper to all the nurses. I think it was just to make the husband feel better. And, um, and so she showed us this clip from any Grey's Anatomy fans out there? She showed us, any Grey's Anatomy fans out there? No? Grey's Anatomy versus Scrubs, real quick. How many are Scrubs? How many are Grey's Anatomy? Scrubs. All right, the rest of you, we're going to have a prayer time. For, um, there's a scene in Grey's Anatomy where um, this woman's giving birth, and I can't remember if it was the husband or, or a friend or whatever, actually gets behind um, the, the woman giving birth. Let's just call them a husband and wife. I can't remember if they were. The husband gets behind her, and so he's, sort, so I'm lean, and, uh, he's leaning against the back of the bed, and, and his wife is here, and then she's giving birth. So we, we thought this has looked amazing. This was like kind of like I would get that, be that much more involved. So I did this. And so I'm sitting there as Corey is leaning against me. And, and I like to joke, like I felt like I was helping, which is a lie. <laughs> but I felt great. And that's the point of this story. No. And so she's like holding my hand and I'm like, I'm like kind of, as she pushes, I'm like helping push her up a little bit. And, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is happening. It's like the closest that could happen to like a man experiencing childbirth. Um, it's just a whole other thing. Uh, and so all of a sudden, you know, like the, the uh, um, I'm trying to think which part of the story I should tell. I'm like, I can't, I don't know where my wife is in the congregation, but I'm, I'm trying to not see her eyes glaring at me right now. So there's this, there's this moment where um, the, the head comes out and Corey wants to, 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 to like feel the head. And so she, she, she reaches down and feels the head. And, and I'm like, you can feel the head? And like, I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, I'm just a wreck. And she's in the zone. And that's the kind of story of our marriage. And, uh, and so the Harper comes out. And, and all of you who are parents who have ever been in the room or, or a doula or a midwife or You've watched a good episode of Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> and that moment when the child comes out, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you, you, you like, this is the first time you've ever like been in, out here. Oh my gosh. And she's covered in goop and all this stuff, and it doesn't matter. I just lose it. And, and <laughs> Corey, at that moment, is filled with a bunch of, um, uh, I can't remember what it is, in, in, not endorphins, 
whatever. All sorts of hormones go shooting into her to like remind her that she didn't just push a baby out. And she's like all talkative, like, hi, hi, welcome to the world. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my God. It was like so unbelievably beautiful. And then I fell asleep, which was just (laughs) weak. This for me was a moment of ultimate beauty. I'm sitting there holding my wife in, in, in like my hands, and then our child comes out. Oh my gosh, I, I was beside myself. Maybe that's why I fell asleep. It was like a faint of beauty. I don't know. I'll just tell the story like that next time. The writer is beside himself over and over. The beauty of God, the splendor of God, the magnificence of God, the weight of God, the weight of this moment. This is what this God is like. So we're told in Scripture that the fullness of God, we're told this twice in Scripture, the fullness of who God is is revealed in Jesus. This is what Christians believe. I know this can be kind of offensive because this is the idea that they're the, the only place where God's revealed. We think the whole earth is full of God's glory. We think we, we, we can see truth all over in all sorts of places. But the fullness of God as followers of Jesus, we believe, resides in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, you look there. And so it's interesting then, if the fullness of this beautiful God, the fullness of this God that deserves our like awe and splendor, that has brought all things into creation, that has laid before us the path of life, It's interesting then that when Jesus comes on the scene, this one writer, John, who tells the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, he says this. He says in verse 10, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world, that's us, did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word, Jesus, became flesh. So God became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory, John is saying, his splendor, his astonishing, breathtaking beauty and we could not recognize such beauty. We were incapable of recognizing ultimate beauty. One writer says, if you wanna know what it looks like when perfect justice and love, self-giving, radical, enemy-loving love looks like, what would happen if that walked the earth? We would crucify it. And that's the story of Christianity. And God taking all that we in the world could throw at him and saying, I will die for your sins. Actually, I will, 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 will die for all of the ugliness. John says we were incapable of even recognizing his beauty We've seen God fully. These first people around the time of Jesus saw God fully and did not recognize him. Have you ever tried to take someone to get a good cup of coffee? Anybody like classify themselves as like maybe a coffee snob a little bit, maybe? I hate that term. You just appreciate good things. My first date, I keep telling stories about Corey. My first date, um, or kind of quasi-date, I go out and we go to Julian's and Corey 
puts sugar and milk in her coffee. And I proceeded to talk to her about why that was so, why would you do that? And you're ruining the cup and the, and which ironically, Julian's doesn't have the greatest coffee in the world, but I still was like, I, I, and Corey remembers that. Like, this was your, like, kickoff. <laughs> Way to lead. <laughs> uh, the first time I had a good cup of coffee probably was, uh, or that I, I knew I was having a good cup of coffee was an Americano at the coffee exchange. My buddy Todd who took me there, and he's like, oh, you got to get an Americano. I'd never even heard of Americano. And I had it, and it tasted like the worst thing I'd ever had in the world. And so I would always like get a, then I started getting like a cinnamon twist in it and I just used the cinnamon twist as a vehicle to soak up the Americano and that didn't work because it's just just too long. The Americano still tastes better. So I started putting honey and like sugar in the Americano and that tasted better. And the reason why I didn't recognize that it was a good Americano is because I was accustomed to swill. Right? Disgusting. We are the home of Dunkin' Donuts. No, Dunkin' Donuts is fine. We've had this fight in our church before. <laughs> One, for those of you who are new, I made a comment about how the trash can was overflowing with Dunkin' Donuts. Um, and it was like, this is so bad. You know, like making a big joke out of it. And then the next week, like, like more people like brought Dunkin' Donuts, like, like the whole box of Joes. And people were just like, oh yeah, pastor? Uh, you know? <laughs> anyway. I was trained, right, to like the, the common <laughs> And I couldn't experience when I was actually having something that was better. And so I remember the first time I had a really good espresso and life changed that day. Or, or my, my, uh, my grandparents uh, used to get, and my grandparents and my oldest uncle used to get so frustrated that I would put ketchup on everything. So when I would eat steak, I'd put ketchup on it. Anyone put ketchup on steak? Yeah, it's because you've never had a good steak. And I didn't realize that this was the problem. And my uncle comes running in after he had like spent all this time on the grill. And he cut, Andrew, don't do that. I'm like, what? I was like, oh, A1 sauce? That be no. And he's like, you have to actually experience how this steak is supposed to taste. I mean, ketchup is just like a, it's just like a coverall for anything. You can have, right? My, the McGuire's, my, my mom's family, just put ketchup on everything. You know, it's like, mmm, like intestine, ketchup on it. Oh, it tastes like ketchup. Ketchup just makes everything taste like ketchup. I remember the first time, I remember that, just like going into that steak, and it was like medium rare. I'm a vegetarian now. This is killing me. I, I caught the steak and taking that first bite, and it was like, oh, this is what steak is supposed to taste like. There was a time when my taste buds were not ready to taste something extraordinary. And this is the crazy thing about us. We are so accustomed to a life without God that we think it's the best life available. We're so accustomed to a life without God that we think it's the best life available. I humbly submit to you that we are so accustomed to a life in our own strength, our own intellect, our own dreams, that we think it's the best out there. We think that if we just avoid the fear of death, that if we just push it down, that if we push it away, that if we then create some sort of uh, ideology that just says, I'll come back as a, as a ficus one day, like it'll, it'll just, it'll just make, make it all go away and that's just the way that we resolve ourselves and we act like that must be the best way to live. We get our identity from things that we know will fail us, but at least they'll win for a little while and so I'll be defined by my X, Y, or Z and, 
and we get accustomed to this way of living, and we don't realize that there's a better way of life. I don't want to take this analogy too far, but when Jesus walked among us, it was like a perfectly pulled espresso walking among us. Amen. I'm done. It's like heresy. But for John, it was not. It doesn't, it doesn't smell right. It doesn't taste right. Jesus showed us what it meant to be fully alive, what the divine looked like, what true beauty looked like, and we despised it. We were incapable of seeing the beauty of who God is. If God makes everything beautiful in its time, in the midst of chaos and war and violence and abuse, the list of things that we read off at the beginning of the service, bigotry, a world that's going to hell, in the midst of all of that, God steps in and shows us beauty, and we did not esteem it. That's what the scriptures are saying. We did not have the capacity to see it. This writer Isaiah, who actually comes way before Easter, who kind of foretells of all that's gonna happen with Jesus, he says this. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he, Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, just our sin, our brokenness, our hurt. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We sang this line. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the sin of us all. The scriptures tell us time and time again that he has come to make everything beautiful and all things new and he is taking all the ugliness and brokenness on himself that we might trust that we are not the product of our sin, the product of our past, the product of the thing that's killing us right now, the product of an identity rooted in anything else other than you are a loved child of God and we don't want to trust it. That we actually, that the fear of death has been removed and yet we live like people who are gonna die and that's gonna be the end. We don't live like this. I fail all the time to live like this. Second Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, if, you're, if you trust this story, if you say, I want to receive this grace, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. That is the promise of resurrection, that in the middle of death, God brings life. We can trust this good news, that our sin does not define us, that we are forgiven for our bent nature, and that death has been defeated. Now, Paul, this writer in the New Testament, the early church, he takes this idea and goes way further with it. He says in, in a book um, to, to these, a small church in Rome, Romans 6, verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, so if in some way Jesus is saying, identify with me in my dying to your sin, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. 
For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, all that just sounded like religious what? Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I love this. Count yourself. Consider it. Assume that that's the reality. Think of it this way. Consider the way you're living differently. Trust that something else has happened. You have no reason without Jesus to trust that you are in some cosmically way loved at the depth of your being. You literally have no reason other than some made-up, disconnected idea, which maybe that's all this is. But could you try it? Could you try to actually live as if, wait, there are thousands of people that believe this is rooted in history, this central understanding and idea that my sin has been taken away because God so loved the world. Not because God was so pissed at the world. Not because God was so angry. Because God so loved the world that our sin has been removed, that he has taken away the death, the sting of death, and has announced that we can partner with him in making all things new. Count yourself, consider it, that the beauty of God, that God is making everything new, that we were made for spirituality and we don't have to wallow in introspection, that we were made for joy and we don't have to settle for pleasure, that we were made for justice and yet we clamor for vengeance, we were made for relationship and yet we insist on our own way. Trust that we were made for beauty and that we end up being satisfied by sentiment. That as followers of Jesus, as people learning to trust the way of Jesus, that new creation has already begun, that the sun is beginning to rise. See, we as a church, sure we are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus everything that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of this world. That's what we're called to do, church, to leave that where it belongs, in the tomb. And that is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus then out of the tomb into the new world, trusting that God's new world, God making all things new, all things beautiful, that has been thrown open before us. There's no longer anything that would bind us from living in the way of the kingdom other than not trusting what God has done. We always think we have to do something to achieve this and all it is is trusting what's been done. And apparently that is enough that would begin to set us free that we could live inside of this new world, heaven on earth now, the thing that every single human being longs for, for everything to be made right, that we can live inside of that as we trust that yeah, death does not have a hold on me anymore. That yes, I fall, yes, I'm screwed up, yes, I'm hypocritical, yes, my old self, my sinful self creeps its way up, but that belongs in the grave. That doesn't define me anymore. That his mercies are new this morning. That there's a fresh start over and over and over again. And in living in that, we can be the kind of people of radical love. The kind of people who wave the banner of Jesus with power and strength and with beauty. So, the question we started with. What happens if you actually live like the resurrection is true? What happens if you trust the way of Jesus?
what happens if you trust that what was done on the cross and the announcement of an empty tomb. There has been a group of people who insist that when you trust this story, the story of new life, the story of beauty, that something is unleashed. Sometimes we think that Jesus' invitation is to think all the right things about a thing. And then you can begin to like be a Christian. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The command is take and eat, not take and understand. The invitation, maybe for you this morning, is to try. The whole scriptures move from word to flesh, to action. For a lot of us, I could sit here and I have a library full of books that try to prove that the resurrection happened. All these philosophical arguments for the way of Jesus. Some of you might be kind of interested in that. That's some of what these intro to sanctuary, or intro to the exploring God classes are all about. Be involved, that's great. I'm not inviting you to be intellectually dishonest. Disclaimer, 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 disclaimer. But for a lot of us, I think, we just want to know, does it work? Does it work? What does it mean to live like the resurrection is true? Jesus' invitation is to take and eat, not take and understand. You can't will it. It's simply trusting that God has done this. It is by grace and grace alone. Just trust that this has been done for you. Accept it. Begin to live like this is true. What happens if you actually live like resurrection is true? I want to invite the, the band up and we're going to sing this, this chorus. This chorus has been sung for, for decades now around Easter. It's this invitation to trust. It's because he lives I can face tomorrow. Because he lives all fear is gone. That life is worth the living just because he lives. What happens if you actually live like resurrection is true? For the followers of Jesus here, to practice resurrection means how are we partnering with God today in transforming despair into hope, apathy into compassion, hate into love, and death into new life. To practice resurrection, to live as if the resurrection is true, to live fully in the awareness that death does not have the last word, that the terror that underlies everything we do, if there's truth to that, does not have a hold on us anymore, that we can live as if we are dying truly and allow that to set us free. For some of us, practicing resurrection means an odd joy and a peace in the wreckage of whatever you're going through. Wherever you're at, the God who loves you exactly right there in that moment and loves you far too much to let you stay there.
practicing resurrection means actually trusting that that beauty that God is making everything new is for you and with you and beginning to trust that. That Jesus has taken away the wrath that was against you. All the things that we know at the bottom of our hearts we deserve or maybe we're too prideful to own, that that has been removed because of what Jesus has done. Practicing resurrection means joining God in raising life all around us. I say again, there has been a community of people for several thousand years who insist that Jesus changed everything, that a tomb is empty, that when you trust this story, something will be unleashed and unlocked in your heart and in your life. So how open-minded are you? What's possible? Is there a new world breaking forth in the midst of this one? Did something happen that changes everything? Is there an empty tomb? What happens if you actually live like this is true? What does this story do to your heart? Before we stand and sing, we just let these words just wash over us for a moment. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know. possible while we're asking questions that God could be so close to you like the writer John talks about and not be aware of it at the end of the Easter story John writes the disciples went back to where they were staying they leave and Mary stood outside the tomb crying Mary Magdalene she wept 
She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. This is a symbol of the temple, the ark where beauty resided. Where Jesus' body went bent, and at one at the head and the other at the foot. Then they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. There's something different about him in his resurrection. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? For those of you who are visiting or something's stirring in your heart, but you know that in your head it's the most ridiculous thing ever. Who is it that you are looking for is the question I have for you. It's my understanding of the world and I just humbly submit this to you. That if you are open-minded, if there is a longing to know God and beauty at its most real, a longing to be made whole, that today you will hear God. Open your eyes and you will see him. That today can be for you. And we don't have to miss him. So for those of you who know me, I, I am far from wanting to emotionally manipulate a situation or, you know, as long as the keyboards keep playing, you know, we'll all feel a little sensitive in the room. I hate that stuff. But for some of us, we might need some help connecting what's happening in our heart to our head. And for some of us, that question, who are you looking for and what are you looking for? There's something in you today that has an interest that has been piqued, not because of any wise or clever words I said or because of music, but I believe because of God's spirit and God's grace calling you home to who you were created to be. And so if you're interested in knowing more about Jesus, you should look. As we finish singing and celebrating today, as we head out, just pray help. Maybe pray, God, open my eyes and I might see you. God, I want to know that beauty. I want to trust that the resurrection is real. And I'm having a hard time believing that death is not the end. Having a hard time trusting that these people that have followed you are, are not delusional. What is it that you are looking for? Jesus asked Mary. Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic. The word she says there was her original given name. He called her by her name. And she recognized it and she says, Rabboni, her rabbi, her teacher, the person she was following. 
I firmly believe that we have a God who is pursuing us, a relentless pursuer of his love, and we simply need to stop long enough to receive and accept. And that we as a church sanctuary, like we, we have to be people not just to proclaim this, but people who are more and more living like this is actually real, practicing this. Let me pray for us. God, open our eyes. We might see you. We might know what it means for us to raise life this week, this year. Give us a vision of the empty tomb and how that plays out and being people that are fighting for justice, people pushing against the violence and brokenness of our world, people filled with love, washing the feet of our enemies. Lord, I pray open our eyes for those who have just walked through these doors, who are again who are dragged here by somebody. that they would um, consider the question, who is it that I'm looking for? And, and consider the question, what does it mean to live like resurrection is true? If riding a bike is awesome, to maybe try living as if and practicing what that bike ride might look like. Open our eyes that we might see you, our ears that we might hear you, and our hearts that we might know you more.